I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We have to remember that these things that we love are businesses, Mm -hmm. right? Like it's really important for people to remember that all of the media we consume, whether it's a book, whether it's a children's book, whether it's a television show, these are businesses. Mm-hmm. And these are people making money. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Marcel Cosman. And I'm Rochelle Saunders. Today, we're talking about marketing and Harry Potter. But marketing is something that I don't actually know anything about, other than what Mad Men has taught me. So Rochelle is here to take us into the sexy, dry, martini-soaked world of Harry Potter marketing. Sexy! Before we begin, though, Rochelle, why don't you introduce yourself and talk a little bit about your expertise and experience in Harry Potter fandom and marketing? So I was a Harry Potter fan from about the time book four came out or just after. That's when I discovered Harry Potter. And then I, because I have a slightly obsessive personality, I got really excited about it and really into it um, and joined a bunch of fan communities. And because I like to write, I started writing fan fiction. Uh, I ended up becoming a moderator and an administrator on a Harry Potter fan fiction website. Mm -hmm. And I still actually interact with a lot of friends I made online during that period, even though I'm not as deep in in Harry Potter anymore. But yeah, for about six years, seven years during the kind of height of the Harry Potter book five, six, seven, Mm -hmm. I spent a lot of time on Harry Potter fan sites. I had a fan fiction recommendations website uh, where every day I would recommend a new piece of fan fiction because I was reading a lot of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it was all, it was something that I really enjoyed and I really enjoyed talking about. Uh, and I was definitely involved in the community. From a marketing side, I was uh, my dad had an advertising company, so I was like born into a marketing mindset. And we used to go to his office, like watch him work. He used to bring me to photo shoots for posters and we'd sort of sit together and he'd ask my opinion when he was building something or talking about stuff because I was always kind of interested in it. And as a career, uh, I've actually done and worked in a lot of marketing and advertising agency settings, uh, mostly through online stuff because that's where my interests are. But within those settings, you kind of talk about strategies as a whole. So there's always conversations about print, about billboards, about sort of the strategy as a whole. Um, So I have uh, a lot of background and that's what I do today a lot of the time is we talk about marketing and branding. So Mm -hmm. yeah. I should also get you to plug your own podcast before I forget so that any of our listeners who are like, wow, this person is so smart. I would like to hear more things. They can follow up. You're very kind. I'm the producer and one of the hosts of a podcast called Science for the People. It's an intersectionally science show. So every episode sort of has something to do with science, but we like to talk about a lot of 
like applications or social justice stuff, um, how science intersects with policy, with politics, with culture, with art. Yeah, because we're really nerdy. And so I interview people, <laughs> long format, it's long format interviews and long format conversations, kind of like Witch Please, mm-hmm. but I think we're less funny. Less funny is probably code for more organized, though. So, like, that's legit. That's fair. <laughs> you are also a wand maker now. Oh. Well, I think that's giving me too much credit. I did, however, help make some wands on a lathe, mostly because I really wanted to work a lathe. And it was really exciting. Okay. Talk to me about marketing and Harry Potter. Assume I know nothing. So the first thing we should probably talk about is branding, because Mm -hmm. really in a concerted marketing strategy, for something like Harry Potter, what you really want to think about first is what the brand is. Because if you're not consistent with the brand, your marketing strategy isn't going to work long term. Um, So branding is an interesting exercise to wrap your head around, because like everybody knows what branding is, but we don't really talk about it. And branding is the way... A product or uh, a service or a business kind of makes you feel. It's like the emotional connection you have and the connotations, the sort of subtle connotations you get when you see that brand. So when you look at Starbucks, Mm -hmm. for example, you get very different connotations and have a very different experience with that brand than you do with something like Tim Hortons, Mm -hmm. right? Like those are two, two, this is if you're not Canadian, maybe this doesn't mean anything to you. But if you are Canadian, you're nodding your head right now and going, yes. Mm-hmm. Like, there's very different vibes between those brands. And, and the brand also sets up an expectation. Mm-hmm. So when you go to a Starbucks, your previous experience with that brand um, and the messaging around that brand sets you up for a very different set of expectations when you walk into that Starbucks or go through the Starbucks drive through and the, what the customer experience is going to be what the product is going to be, what the layout of the the cafe, Mm -hmm. whether or not it's a comfortable place for you to sit and stay Mm -hmm. for a while. Uh, Whereas if you walk into a Tim Hortons or if you're not Canadian, let's say McDonald's, Mm -hmm. you have a very different set of experiences. You can get coffee at both places and you can get pretty decent coffee at both places, Mm -hmm. except not Tim Hortons. I don't like Tim Hortons coffee. I'm sorry, Canada. You're not wrong. It's really vile. You guys have to stop drinking Tim Hortons coffee right now. It's not good. Just because it's Canadian doesn't make it good. It's a very different set of expectations around how you interact with that brand, what your comfort level is. So, for example, you're much more likely to sit in a Starbucks and have a conversation with a friend over a coffee than you are to McDonald's. Well, why is that? Like, why do we have that different conception of those two different spaces? Mm -hmm. And it's a lot to do with branding. And branding isn't just about the marketing messages you see. It's about the quality of the product. It's about your experiences with the product. If it's uh, something that's got a service component, then it's hugely impacted by the type of customer service that you get. Mm -hmm. So there's lots of different things that go into building a brand. It's not just about making a logo or whether or not your product is good. Because people like crap products, right? <laughs> like, we like Tim Hortons coffee. Why? There's a whole, like, warm, fuzzy Canada thing. We, we drink the bad coffee because it's Canadian. 
we just really get excited about anything that's Canadian. And I would just like to remind everyone that now Tim Hortons is owned by an American company and it's a disaster. (laughs) (laughs) But like, surely these kinds of things don't apply to something like something as pure and beautiful as Harry Potter, right? Like Harry Potter couldn't possibly have been designed with a specific end game in mind, right? End game, not necessarily, but there's sort of three main ownership roles in the Harry Potter brand. The first is J.K. Rowling as the author, and we're going to come back to her in a second, because she has been hugely influential in a way that most authors are not in the branding of their franchise, their sort of whole component. The other one is uh, is Bloomsbury, which was the UK publisher. Mm -hmm. And the third is Warner Brothers, which has the movie rights and did the movies. So there's sort of three major stakeholders in the brand, the people who are uh, likely who are going to get the most money. And I guess you can throw Scholastic in there because Scholastic was the North American publisher. But Bloomsbury kind of has the most say from a publisher perspective. Now, most authors will, when they sign uh, a deal to publish books or to sign away movie rights, you kind of surrender a lot of your rights to the product, Mm -hmm. especially with movie rights. So you keep uh, the ability to have some control over what you write, But generally speaking, when you sign away movie rights, you say, you can do whatever you want. In the movie sphere, you have complete control. J.K. Rowling very specifically did not do that. And she accepted a substantially lower fee. She only got around a million dollars for the movie rights, which is nothing. That is nothing. That is zero (laughs) dollars. And the reason she accepted that was because she wanted to retain control, creative control and creative influence over the brand and the movies. And quite famously, um, when the movie rights were being shopped around, Disney, they were in talks with Disney. Mm-hmm. And it's not, I don't think it was ever released why those talks broke down or why Disney passed on it or why they passed on Disney. Mm-hmm. But it's almost certainly, at least in part, related to the way Disney deals with merchandising. Because if you know anything about Disney, you know that they are a merchandising powerhouse. Mm -hmm. Everything they make, they merchandise the crap out of. Mm -hmm. Their entire empire is built around selling stuff. And J.K. Rowling, very specifically and quite famously, is not, has made very very careful merchandising decisions. So as an example, nobody remembers a Harry Potter toy in a Happy Meal at McDonald's because they didn't allow that to happen. Right. A lot of um, a lot of media targeted at kids tends to oversaturate the market and get a lot of merchandise out there really quickly. Um, but J.K. Rowling was really, really careful and concerned about the quality of the toys in order to try and keep that brand message of a high quality. And so that carried through not just from the writing and the story she created and wanting to have input in keeping the movies as close to the story um, and the themes of the books as possible, but also into the stuff that was sold. She wanted to see that stuff be of a certain quality. Mm-hmm. She didn't want to have cheap plastic things that didn't look right mm-hmm. distributed in Happy Meals with hamburgers. That just something for her that didn't connect with the brand message. Mm-hmm. And that has some really interesting implications because um, if you think about something that's as popular as Harry Potter, there was a big demand for stuff, Mm -hmm. right? And (laughs) that lack of stuff made the stuff that did exist more exciting and sell better because, A, it was perceived to be higher quality, Mm -hmm. 
And B, there wasn't a lot of it around. So when something did come out, people got really excited about it mm-hmm. and wanted to own it before it ran out or before it wasn't available anymore. So there was this perceived scarcity. Mm-hmm. It was incredibly strategic in the entire lifespan of Harry Potter, and I think probably continues to be strategic today. Mm-hmm. If you look at the traveling Harry Potter um, show that you see mm-hmm. pop up in a lot of science centers and yeah. a lot of those places, the merchandising there has been very carefully selected. It's not a gigantic store with lots mm-hmm. of chintzy plastic keychains. Like it's, it's very high quality stuff, yeah. um, and it's, it's it's expensive, but yeah. people buy it. I'm really interested to hear you say that because we went to see that, um, Hannah and Trevor and I, and we were all really surprised by how unsatisfying the merchandising was. Like we were, we went there, maybe not Trevor. Trevor is so happy to never spend money on anything. And that's great. That's one of the reasons why he is not in debt. Good job, Trevor. However, Hannah and I went there being like, we have so much money, we're going to buy so much Harry Potter stuff. And we ended up leaving not buying anything. The closest I came was was to buy a mug with Dobby on it that says Dobby is a free elf. And I didn't get it because I think the mug was something like $18. And so I, I totally hear what you're saying about it being expensive and probably high quality. I wonder, like, what's wrong with me? Why didn't I buy that mug? <laughs> I don't think there's anything wrong with you. I think that there's just a, a certain level of money you're willing to pay for a thing, right? Like if that mug had been $10, I totally would have gotten you would have left with that mug. <laughs> you would have left with that mug. And that's different for different people, right? Yeah. It's both relevant to the level of engagement you have with the thing mm-hmm. and the level of passion you have for it. And also to some extent, are you a person that likes things? Mm-hmm. So yeah. I quite well known in my family don't like to buy things so I try and buy as few things as possible and that's just more about me as a person and less about my willingness to engage with the brand having said that I do own two Harry Potter scarves (laughs) because there were two different ones for the different movies the first two movies had different looks than that so I had to get both This is all so interesting. I feel like I'm learning a lot about myself right now because I'm thinking about, so that same exhibit, um, the other thing that we couldn't help but notice is that there actually, like, there was stuff, but like you said, there wasn't a lot of stuff. And I wonder if that kind of carefully selected, curated, limited selection, I'm thinking about it in terms of, like, if there had been more stuff, I probably would have been more likely to find something that I was willing to spend money on. But that's because... If there isn't a thing that I want, I will just go down in price until I find something that's at a price that I'm like, well, I'm willing to spend that much money on a thing that I don't want, which is a really weird... Capitalism is so strange. What's interesting about going into a merchandising space that has fewer options, Mm -hmm. um, it's like going into a restaurant with fewer options, right? Right. So if you go into a high-end restaurant, Mm -hmm. you're presented with a one-page menu, Mm -hmm. you have four entrees to select from, you have... You know, three appetizers, you have three desserts. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's very deliberate, right? Because to create a really large menu is a drain on a kitchen, which means that the quality comes down for the food. Mm -hmm. It means that everybody can find something that they're going to be happy with, but you're not, if you go to a place that's got a 10-page menu, you're probably not going to find something that makes you go, whoa, that's the best meal I've ever had. 
but if something has been again this is like the finely crafted the mm-hmm. kind of homemade handcrafted thing mm-hmm. but you've got a smaller menu then you can spend more time mm-hmm. crafting those things and hypothetically it's a higher quality now sometimes that's a perceived higher quality right because you can change the perceived quality of a thing just by charging more money from it so sometimes when you see high prices on stuff that's more of a deliberate attempt like sometimes the thing isn't actually better but we know that if we give it a higher price then we assume that it's better Mm -hmm. and so sometimes part of a higher pricing strategy is about the brand it's about these things want to present we want them to present as a higher quality and in order to do that we have to show people that it's higher quality by giving it a higher price tag the other really interesting thing about harry potter merchandising is that because of the house system in harry potter everybody has like personally connected with a particular Mm. house Uh, and so you want to have a thing for that house because it's part of your identity, right? Mm-hmm. So you want to have the red scarf. You want to have the green scarf if you are if you identify with that house. And so there's a built-in like merchandising hook there mm-hmm. because it's tied in so tightly with who you think you are and who you want to be perceived as. Oh like the act of buying and wearing a Slytherin scarf all winter mm-hmm. is a very... Like, it's a statement about who you are than if you wear a Gryffindor scarf all winter, right? Yeah. When I see students on campus wearing scarves from one house or another, I make snap judgments about those people. They're not necessarily bad judgments. Like, when I see somebody wearing a Gryffindor scarf, I don't necessarily think that that person's (gasps) I'm just kidding. I do. No, I'm not. I'm just kidding again. I'm such a mean person. Um, No, but like, especially when I see somebody wearing a Hufflepuff scarf, I always think like that person has like a wicked rock solid sense of identity if they're wearing a Hufflepuff scarf, because I feel like Hufflepuffs tend to be people who like they like own their Hufflepuff identity way more than other houses. So my sister's a self-identified Hufflepuff Mm -hmm. and she like she knows she's a Hufflepuff. She embraces her Hufflepuffness, but she really like prefers the look of the Gryffindor things. And so when she goes to to places where she can buy like a shirt, she really, really desperately wants, like she stands there and like pets the Gryffindor red. And she's like, oh, she's like, no, I'm a Hufflepuff. And she'll go and she'll buy the Hufflepuff shirt and wear it proudly, even though wow. standing there in front of, in front of it like aesthetically she wants the red one she wants the one with the lion but she's like no because that's not who i am i'm a hufflepuff i gotta buy the hufflepuff stuff so what you're saying is that this is what brand loyalty is yes okay yes brand loyalty is a really interesting thing and you can both happen into brand loyalty a little bit but you can also really cultivate brand loyalty there's a couple of key components if you're in marketing and if you want to create brand loyalty that you really need to think about. The first is stability. Mm -hmm. And basically what that means is you want to keep the brand consistent. If your brand is all over the place, if it it bounces back and forth from being something that's uneven in quality, Mm -hmm. whenever I think of uneven in quality, I think of the Torchwood television series, which was like the highest of highs followed by the lowest (laughs) of lows. What a terrible I love that television show, but at the same time, it's a great example for really uneven, like famously uneven quality. But the more stable your brand is, 
um, the more likely like people know what to expect of it. Apple does a really good job of this, right? Like mm-hmm. Apple products have been surprisingly stable in uh, the way they're, they've had expectations. Now that's starting to change a little bit in the last couple of years, which is causing Apple some interesting like existential mm-hmm. crises, which is fun to watch um, and a little bit scary if you're an Apple aficionado, but whatever. Uh, the other thing is you you want something that's sustainable. So brands that just come and go that don't see don't don't seem to have a future. You can't get you can't create loyalty in them because they're not going to be around. So right. you the brand needs to have staying power, mm-hmm. and not just staying power from a business perspective, but the people who buy it or who engage with it need to assume that it's going to be around long term. Otherwise, mm-hmm. they aren't going to become emotionally invested in something that's going to end mm-hmm. because that's painful. We don't want to get really excited about something or become emotionally invested in something if it's going to end. Mm-hmm. This is why we get really sad when our favorite characters die, right? Because if you get emotionally invested in that person, all of a sudden they're not there anymore. Mm-hmm. You don't get to see them in your television show. And it's really upsetting if you've if you've become attached to that. So Mm -hmm. that's part of creating brand loyalty as well. You can't have something that's going to disappear. Mm -hmm. Um, And the last one that is becoming more and more relevant now with the internet and was really important with Harry Potter is the social aspects of your brand and the community aspects Mm -hmm. and how that uh, brand creates or intersects with your identity. Mm -hmm. Because someone who carries an Apple iPhone or someone who carries an Apple laptop is saying something about themselves as an individual that is different from if you're carrying a Windows or a, a PC computer, right? Mm-hmm. Or a Dell. Yeah. That's You buy an Apple, even if we say we buy them because we just like them better, mm-hmm. like you're buying them because you identify with the brand and you want other people to identify you as an Apple person. Mm-hmm. That's... That's an unconscious thing. For some people, it's a conscious thing, but it's yeah. it's part of building that brand loyalty. It's why I will continue to pay an outrageous sum of money for an Apple laptop. Yeah, I know how to use them, and I like them, but also it's part of who I am. Yeah, Apple is a really helpful example for me because I'm remembering when the iPhone came out. I didn't get – I'm not one of those people who had, like, an iPhone right away. I waited a really long time and used like a really shitty garbage phone long after smartphones had become the norm. But when I made the switch to getting a smartphone, I was only interested in getting an iPhone because the branding had been so successful. But I knew, like, I went into it knowing that I was buying an iPhone because I wanted an iPhone. Like that was a very specific decision that I made and I was aware that the that the branding and the marketing had worked on me, but I didn't care. But then once I had it, I was really embarrassed that I had it because I was like, oh shit, like it doesn't matter that I'm self-conscious about the marketing working on me. All these other people around me see that the marketing worked on me because I have an iPhone and I find that a really fascinating disconnect. <laughs> See, that's really interesting because it actually like tells us even more about your identity <laughs> and who you spend time with, right? Because it tells us that you spend time with people who are aware enough of the effects of advertising to also want to like counter that and be like, I'm not going to buy an iPhone because I'm not, I'm like actively deciding not to be controlled by that marketing. So many right? Characters. Yeah. 
which is an entirely different kind of thing. Like, how do you appeal to a hipster? Mm -hmm. That is a fascinating marketing question. Mm -hmm. And it's changing too, right? Because the hipster market used to very strongly identify with Apple. Mm -hmm. Like, that was Apple's bread and butter before Apple got popular, was the individual, creative, quirky... You know, someone who liked handcrafted stuff, someone who wanted quality, someone who was very invested in their sort of creative integrity. Mm-hmm. That was their that was their brand for years until they kind of became this m- more mainstream thing. Mm-hmm. And so all of a sudden now the hipsters are kind of going off Apple, which is fun to watch, actually. <laughs> it's fun to watch this, like the brand change and people react to it differently. Mm-hmm. The mainstreaming of brands is I love watching it happen and I love watching how people react to a brand that used to be like really kind of niche mm-hmm. and then it gets popular and all of a sudden people are like, "Oh no, it's crap now." It's like, "Well, no, the quality is basically the same. Yeah. It's just that now that everyone's using it, it no longer speaks to your identity in the same way because it's not exclusive." Mm-hmm. I know that we're veering so far away from Harry Potter, but I want to talk about this in terms of Doctor Who as well, because like Doctor Who very for a relatively brief time, but a very intense time had become like a really integral part of my identity and my like love and affection for the series had become so entrenched in who I was as a person. And then Two things happened sort of fairly close together. One is that the pawns left and were replaced with a single companion called Clara. And the other thing is that Doctor Who exploded in popularity in North America. And I'm not sure which one is more to blame for my abandonment when actually what really happened is like Stephen Moffat just started doing way too many drugs and started writing terrible shows. And like, that's fine. All of these things are connected. But all of a sudden, like, I, I do not feel the same, the same zeal for that series as I did when the pawns were still the companions on the show. And It's not even the doctor. It's not even that the doctor changed, which I know is a thing that happens. Like they get a new doctor. People abandon the show because they're like, oh, I hate this person. The old doctor was the best doctor. And then they come back around and that's fine. Um, I guess I'm just I'm so interested in how like my own love and affection for the show waned with its popularity. And that's really that's so silly. Did a similar thing happen with Harry Potter when Harry Potter became increasingly popular would you say that there were people who abandoned it because it was too mainstream i don't think so harry potter this actually segues really nicely um into something kind of unique about the harry potter brand that has to do less with the harry potter brand itself and more with timing Mm -hmm. so if we think about when the harry potter books were being published they started being published in the late 90s And the last one was published, I think, in 2007. So the height of the Harry Potter, like when Harry Potter was really ramping up and things were getting kind of crazy for the first time, if we think back about what was happening right around 2000, 2001, 2002, this is when the internet was really exploding in a way that we had never seen before. It was a thing that really hadn't existed before. Like 
Still at this time, Facebook wasn't a thing. Twitter wasn't a thing. But there were lots of forums online. People were engaging with each other on mailing lists. We had reached a critical mass of people who were online, who had emails, who were engaging online. It was in more households. More young people were involved and getting online and talking with people and connecting over shared interests. So this was a time when, oh, back to GeoCities. I love you, GeoCities. Angel fire. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I I had several GeoCities websites, and it warms my heart to know that someone saved them all, and somewhere those websites still exist. In some, it makes me really happy. Oh <laughs> all those flashing GIFs. It's great. It's great. There was one that was just a rose that like bloomed and closed and bloomed and closed and bloomed and closed. Oh, my God. And hit counters. Lovely. <laughs> hit counters. Okay. <laughs> This is a time when people are starting to engage and people are connecting online about Harry Potter because they're excited about it and mm -hmm. because they wanted more. So Harry Potter is an interesting brand because it was serialized. Mm -hmm. So it was clear from the beginning, the very first book, that there were going to be seven books. Mm -hmm. So people knew that there was a longevity to the series. The, the books were very clearly serialized in a continuing the story way, especially mm -hmm. After book three, everything right. became much more serialized and much less self-contained. You wanted to know what was going to happen next. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that there were cliffhangers, but there was clearly unanswered questions mm -hmm. that would be answered down the road. Right. And so that piqued people's interest. Combine that with the fact that J.K. Rowling wasn't publishing every year, so they weren't coming out too fast, but there also wasn't like 10 and 12 and 15-year gaps between things. George R.R. Martin. Yes, or even Stephen King in the Dark okay. Tower series. There was, what, like 20 years between two of the books? So there continued to be this, this like, we're waiting, but we can see the end in sight, right? Like, it, we don't have to wait too long, so we can sustain the enthusiasm through this dry spell. Mm -hmm. Coupled on that, the really once the movie started filming, uh, that there was pieces of information coming out about the movie, so casting information, trailers, location information, some set photos, that kind of stuff coming out. And it was just kind of enough to keep people interested and remind them that it was there. Mm -hmm. Plus, for the not the first time, but the first time in a really major way, fan sites were engaging at a higher velocity. So it wasn't just, this wasn't something that was unique to Harry Potter, but the velocity and the sheer numbers represented by the Harry Potter fan community was like nothing we had ever seen online. Mm -hmm. So there were, like Buffy the Vampire Slayer had a really healthy fan community. Simpsons, there was a healthy fan community. But Harry Potter started to gain in numbers really, really fast. And this was an era around 99, 2000, 2001, 2002, when corporations like Warner Brothers, in particular 20th Century Fox did this a lot, were sending cease and desist to a lot of fan sites for copyright infringement. So a lot of people were creating fan sites, putting up pictures from the show that they watched, um, writing fan fiction, just talking about the show, trying to engage with people. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of these companies were sending cease and desist orders trying to defend their copyright. They were really concerned about making sure that people weren't infringing on their copyright. Mm -hmm. What was really interesting about Harry Potter is for the first time, instead of adults doing this, there were kids creating fan websites called harrypotterfans.com or harrypotteralliance.uk, whatever the URLs were. 
And just putting the word Harry Potter in a domain name is in itself copyright and trademark infringement. And so Warner Brothers, now who has to defend their part of the trademark, is just getting their lawyers doing what lawyers do, which is to defend the trademark. They find a thing. They send a cease and desist letter. Well, the thing is, is there's 10-year-old kids, 11-year-old kids who all they want to do is talk about their love for Harry Potter and post some photos of the movie stills that they're really excited about and they're just like they're enthusiastic and these 10 year old 11 year old 12 year old kids are getting cease and desist letters that are really scary right talking about like you're infringing our copyright you can be sued you have to take this down right now and there ended up being um a lot of bad PR because a lot of these and there, there was already kind of this happening in the adult fan community. Simpsons was really, really well known for this. 20th Century Fox was shutting down Simpsons websites left, right and center. Mm-hmm. And back in this era, <laughs> there was I remember and I don't remember the exact date, but because of 20th Century Fox trying to shut down a bunch of stuff, there was this like organized online dark day where all of the fan sites um, across multiple fandoms for 24 hours shut down and put a black page up with white text talking about why they had shut down and that they had, you know, they were sort of fighting this overzealous trademark infringement Mm -hmm. um, stuff. And so this started to gain some velocity. And when these kids got caught up in this, Mm -hmm. who were scared, right? They didn't want to get their parents in trouble. They they, they didn't want to get arrested. Like, they don't know what's going on. Um, There was some groups created to start to fight this. It got a lot of bad PR. Mm -hmm. And J.K. Rowling, Bloomsbury, and Warner Brothers made a really smart decision at this time, which was they stopped doing this. Whereas 20th Century Fox kind of did, screw you, this is our trademark, we're going to continue to control it. These three people sat down and said, look, this is not bad for us to have this kind of enthusiasm out there, and it's going to happen regardless, so let's embrace it, right? Let's not send cease and desist. Let's encourage this kind of fan culture because people are excited and enthusiastic. And if excited, enthusiastic people are talking about our things and in mm-hmm. excited and enthusiastic ways, that's just going to get more people interested. Mm-hmm. So this was the first time really that a content creator, a big one who controlled a trademark said, do what you will, right? They said, yep, we're not going to send any of these. We're going to tell our legal departments to back off. Mm-hmm. We're going to be very selective about who we target based on actual concerns about brand and infringement. And you can go forth and be enthusiastic and create and do everything you're going to do. And we give you our blessing. What's really interesting about this is like it completely changed the vibe mm-hmm. of Harry Potter and encouraged it to be a social brand in a way that we see is really normal now. Like if we think about Game of Thrones, Mm -hmm. if we think about Doctor Who, the modern Doctor Who, if we think about the Marvel movie universe, Mm -hmm. all of that stuff has intense fan communities around it. And also, it's very normal for people to talk about that stuff online, especially in social spaces, and to share, like, memes that are made. No one one puts cease and desist letters to anyone because they created a meme or because they have a website that features a bunch of fan art of Mm -hmm. Captain America. Um, that is all relatively new. So it sounds like this decision that Warner Brothers and J.K. Rowling and Bloomsbury made together was like a total game changer in terms of fandom in general. Is that, am I understanding you right? That yeah. like, if they had, if they had not made this decision, fandom would look very different? 
I think that's probably accurate because they were the first ones to really, sorry, not the first ones, but the first major brand that had a massive kind of worldwide hit following mm-hmm. that had the numbers that they did to embrace fan culture, online fan culture, mm-hmm. in a way that was really open and really genuine. And not only that, but over time, they actually created an ongoing dialogue. So when J.K. Rowling created her website, Mm -hmm. she had a section on it that was the Harry Potter fan site awards, and she would give major fan sites awards. So not only am I acknowledging your right to exist and encouraging it, but I'm actually telling you that I visit your site, Mm -hmm. and I like your site, Mm -hmm. and I'm vouching for your site and saying that you're great. Also, as the movies went on, there was a relationship created between the really major uh, Harry Potter websites, places like MuggleNet, places like, um, uh, I think it's the Leaky Cauldron, Mm -hmm. that website. Um, They had podcasts running, and they had huge numbers of Harry Potter fans who were following those websites and also listening to their podcasts. And so seeing that connection, not only did Warner Brothers say, yes, go and do this, do what you will, but then they also started prioritizing that relationship over mainstream media relationships. Mm -hmm. So new information about the movies, casting information, trailers, Mm -hmm. uh, all of that would oftentimes later on in the movie process go to those fan sites first. They got first dibs on that information. They were invited to come and do set tours. Quite famously, uh, the Leaky Podcast interviewed J.K. Rowling. Hmm. Like, there were connections made, and f- and they sort of understood that this is where our people are. Yeah. Like, if we, they really want this information, they want anything we'll give them, mm-hmm. and this is how you get it to them. Because if we do this and create these relationships, we create a lot of goodwill in the brand, mm-hmm. and also show that not only are we going to, turn a blind eye to the sort of legal questions around whether this should exist, but we're going to actively encourage it to exist because we see it as beneficial to the brand. Now, previously, a lot of people, a lot of companies were worried about this causing them branding problems, right? The concern was this trademark infringement would dilute the brand or would modify the brand. And so by Warner Brothers Hurt and J.K. Rowling endorsing this for the first time really in a kind of concerted, strategic, all-encompassing way, although not all-encompassing, and we'll come back to that in a second, Mm -hmm. they showed that not only would it not damage the brand, Mm -hmm. but if done in the right way and if cultivated and allowed to kind of be its own thing, it would actually increase the viability and loyalty of the brand. Mm -hmm. And so once you sort of see this case study, once other companies look at that and see, oh, this can work, and not only can it work, but it can sell, it can make us more money, Mm -hmm. then this kind of litigious culture around fan communities very, very quickly dissolved. Mm -hmm. In large part, I think, because of this massive success of Harry Potter and the embracing of fan culture. Now, having said that, when I say they embraced fan culture... Mm -hmm. I will say that they didn't embrace all of the pieces of it. So quite famously, J.K. Rowling was very um, happy about fan fiction. She delighted in it, but she did not like R-rated fan fiction. And she was quite vocal about thinking that it was inappropriate for people to be writing sexually explicit fan fiction or creating sexually explicit fan art Mm -hmm. about a book series that was for children. And in fact, after they stopped sending cease and desist letters to, you know, regular fan sites, they were still going after 
um, R-rated fanfiction archives. Mm -hmm. Also, there was um, quite a famous incident with, uh, there was a a website run by a guy, I think he was a librarian, called The Lexicon, The Harry Potter Lexicon. And it was just like this compendium of kind of cross-referenced, as librarians do, (laughs) information about Harry Potter that um, I believe J.K. Rowling even admitted she had used once in a while rather than go through her own notes because it was better organized and she could find the information she was looking for faster. A number of years later, he decided to write a book and that's where they drew the line, Hmm. right? So the website existing was okay, but as soon as he wanted to write a book that was just putting the information and selling it, Mm -hmm. that suddenly crossed the line. And there was a a quite um, well-known legal battle in which J.K. Rowling won that battle, Mm -hmm. and he was not allowed to publish that book. So it wasn't kind of without question, Mm -hmm. and there were some brand concerns that she had about certain types of fan activities. Mm -hmm. And I think that they – I don't think there's been any attempt to close down things like R-rated fan fiction sections now. I think that battle has been lost. Mm -hmm. Plus there's some fair use questions there that are – probably cause them some problems. Mm -hmm. So it's not – it wasn't without question, but it was certainly much broader than anyone had done before. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Okay, so this is really fascinating because essentially what you're saying is that on the one hand, the Harry Potter brand is meticulously organized and deployed and controlled. But on the other hand, fan expressions are allowed to flourish in such a way that their interactions with the brand are not seen to dilute the brand in any way. Although, as you were saying, there are some lines that are drawn. Um, Can you talk a little bit more about J.K. Rowling's control of the brand and how... Like, the reason why I'm thinking that this is so particularly interesting is because of the recent... We'll call it drama. (laughs) With the hashtag... What is it? J.K. Rowling is over party or something... Yeah. Something like that, where fans, like, fairly recently, a huge swath of fans who are either allies of or members of the queer community have started to reject J.K. Rowling's control of the brand because it's too controlling. Her refusal to let fans take a series that is ostensibly finished... Um, her refusal to let those fans continue to tell those stories and make sense of those characters um, has really impeded that community's ability to participate in the brand. I'm not actually sure if that if there's a question there. Talk to me about what I just said. <laughs> this is 
kind of interesting because I think we're seeing a different phase Mm -hmm. of this online engagement as previously in fan communities. And there's some really interesting conversations that have happened about this on a on a fandom podcast called Fansplaining. Mm -hmm. So if anybody's interested in talking about or hearing about people talk about the sort of fourth wall of fandom, Mm -hmm. um, that's a good one to go to. But they because they talk about this a lot. And with the advent of social media in the way we have it now, especially things like Twitter, where creators of content and and I'm including people like actors, authors, directors, writers into that category, being able to interact with consumers of that content in a way that we never have before. So those interactions are new. Like previously, an actor like Benedict Cumberbatch would never, and I don't even know if he's on Twitter, so maybe that's not a good example. But if he was on Twitter, and maybe he's not on Twitter because he'd just be inundated, the poor man. Um, <laughs> but if he was, like, you could create a conversation mm-hmm. with him, right? Or he could engage in that conversation if he, want, if he wanted to. And in fact, if you talk to people or listen to conversations with new up-and-coming actors, is that is becoming increasingly important for them to cultivate in order to get a job, right? To continue to get work, they need to have a fan base, hmm. And so those kinds of communication networks and being able to encourage and talk to people and get that kind of enthusiasm with their fan base, with the consumers of their work on a very personal level that w- didn't exist before is becoming more important and increasingly possible. Now, some some of these people are kind of rejecting that connection. So we're taking breaks from that. So Joss Whedon's a good example. He fairly recently kind of left Twitter. Some people say flounced. I don't know that it was quite a flounce, but you can call it that if you want. And so that's creating some interesting dynamics, right? Like the only reason we think J.K. Rowling is too controlling of a brand now is because she's participating in the conversation that's happening online. So we can say... You know, we think this, we think Remus Lupin and Sirius Black were queer mm-hmm. because that's my headcanon, right? Like I, I see textual evidence for it uh, and I just think it's great and this is, this is what I think. And you have mm-hmm. conversations about that. Well, if J.K. Rowling is tagged in those conversations, mm-hmm. then I, you know, as the author of the books, as someone who had authorial intent when she wrote it, mm-hmm. I can see how there's a part of you to be like, well, that's not what I wrote. Mm-hmm. But before she wouldn't have, A, she wouldn't have known about those conversations. Right. And B, she wouldn't have been able to reply. Mm-hmm. So I don't know that she's trying to exert control in a way that a lot of people think she is. I think she's being an author of a work, trying to have a conversation about that work with people mm-hmm. and trying to navigate a space of, this is my headcanon as the author, which mm-hmm. I feel should be more canon, more real, more whatever term you want to use. Yeah, more authoritative (laughs) because I am the person that created it. And I just, you know, this is, I just want to let you know that that's not what I was thinking. But I think sometimes people take that in different ways. And there are some interesting cases of authors who are much freer with that kind of connection or who are trying to be. So I think John Green sometimes is a good example. He's got a, a huge fan following um, and he has a, a great dialogue with a lot of his his young fans. 
Um, and I think he does a pretty good job of letting his stuff go. I mean, not a perfect job because everybody fails, but he's pretty aware of the fact that once you create a thing and you put it out there, it kind of ceases to be your thing. Mm -hmm. And so I think he tries to not, I think he tries to listen more than he tries to correct. Whereas JK Rowling, in part because she's a different age, she comes from a different place. And also because she's been so concerned there's been a lot of effort on her part to try and keep the brand consistent, mm -hmm. that trying to navigate that desire for a consistent, high-quality brand, but also not really understanding where that line should be drawn with consumer conversations mm -hmm. can be really tricky. Okay. So I don't think she's controlling, but I think that there's maybe a disconnect there with the fourth wall of creator and the people who have kind of taken your thing and given it a life outside of your mm -hmm. own conception. I think it's fair to say that we on the Witch Please podcast have been critical <laughs> of JK Rowling and her, what I believe I have described in the past as vice grip on the mm. Harry Potter canon. Um, but what it sounds like you're saying is that these are just really smart branding decisions that she's made and like Harry Potter is a franchise and if you are the creator and the owner of a franchise you at some point have to exert control over it in order to keep it consistent and you know keep keep it secret keep it safe but not secret well, just safe okay tell me about, tell me about keep it secret keep it safe okay let me back up okay so originally when the first three books were published, the books would come out in the UK from Bloomsbury. Mm -hmm. And then a year later, Scholastic would publish them in the US. So there was a year gap between when the UK audience got the books and the North American audience got the books for the first three books. I had no idea. Yes, oh this is God. critical. This completely changed the way the publishing industry dealt with book launches oh for the God. first time. When book three came out, the hype was enough that people were angry in North America. And North America is a big market, right? Yeah. Especially the U.S., about the fact that they were going to have to wait a whole year to get this book when people in the U.K. would have had it already. And so huge numbers of people were buying or somehow getting their hands on the book in the U.K. and shipping it to North America. The problem with this is that that massively eats into Scholastic's revenue right because they bought the rights to publish and distribute the book in North America mm -hmm. and if they don't have dominion over that market because people are able to online mm -hmm. order the book from the UK then they get zero dollars and that's a big problem yeah. and so for book four it was decided by Bloomsbury and Scholastic that not only would they release it around the same time but they would release that book simultaneously in all the English-speaking countries. Wow. So that was a huge change. That was also the first time, I believe, that they took pre-orders. Mm -hmm. And so then you have this issue of we've taken all of these pre-orders, something like a million pre-orders, and all of these people want the book on the day it's released because it's well known that we're releasing this book on a specific day. Mm -hmm. Well, now you've got, like, you've got to get all those books printed, You've got to get all the books shipped to bookstores. 
And then if people are, are getting them delivered, you've got to get all those books to individual people and they all want them as soon as possible because this also kind of intersects with the whole like spoiler phobia we have in modern internet culture and life around things like books and television shows and movies, which I have thoughts on mostly because I really love spoilers. <laughs> so I don't understand. This completely changed the way book launches were done, right? Mm-hmm. And then it also created the book four um quite notoriously had a bunch of uh, plot details that got out uh so spoilers happened and then this for the book five launch created this um environment of like keep the secrets don't spoil people and there was a concerted kind of pr campaign with people so that people wouldn't spoil it for other people because that jk rowling is really invested in like people experiencing harry potter and not being spoiled in a way that i don't know that i've seen any other creator be quite so invested Mm -hmm. in the first time reading experience or watching experience of the thing Mm -hmm. but it was really important to jk rowling and i don't quite know why but it 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 had this like cascade effect throughout all their marketing which was actually kind of good for them in a weird way Mm -hmm. One of the things they did was had massive book embargoes. So they had very specific rules for your bookstore. If you wanted to get the next Harry Potter book, you had to agree to a very stringent list of requirements. Like the books had to be stored in a sealed place that nobody had access to. They had to be kept covered. If a book was found to be sold early Mm -hmm. by accident, intentionally, they didn't care. That meant that you were not able to get any future Harry Potter books, which given that the book was selling millions of copies, that would be a big problem for a bookstore. And you would just have to sign these things. If you wanted future Harry Potter books, you just had to agree to them. This also created, because people couldn't wait, right? It wasn't like, I'll go in at noon on the day it's released and pick up my copy. It's like, I want it as soon as I can get it, which created the culture of these midnight book releases and the sort of social party and excitement of like the first person in line to get the Harry Potter book. Um, And also put a lot of pressure on providers like Amazon, because if I have the choice as an avid Harry Potter fan to either to line up and pay money at chapters to get my book at midnight or to pay Amazon for my book and as long as they guarantee that I'll get it the day of so I don't have to wait for the book, you know, they have to kind of compete with that. And uh, I have a really great story about when I got my book five. So my sister and I, we each got our own copies because obviously we weren't going to share. And we ordered them on Amazon uh, and opted for the like, you will deliver it on the day. So we're sitting in our house, we're waiting for our Harry Potter book. And they only, they said it was like, you'd get it sometime between 9 a.m. and I think 2 p.m. We're sitting there, we're really excited, we're waiting, we're waiting. And all of a sudden this like minivan comes down the street and it's kind of slow and then it like pulls into the driveway. We're like, you know, we thought it was someone maybe coming to drop something off for, for our parents. And these two kids probably, I don't know, one was probably like 10, another one was maybe 12, maybe younger, I don't know. The door to the minivan gets thrown open. These two kids with brown paper wrapped books leap out of the van. They run across. They put their books on the step. They ring the doorbell. Ding, 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 ding. Five times. They see us as they walk past the window and they're shouting, Harry Potter, Harry Potter, Harry Potter. And then they leap into the van, shut the door and they drive away. It was amazing. It was the best possible way to receive Harry Potter that day. They were so excited to be delivering Harry Potter books to people. Oh. I don't understand who the kids were. 
I I don't know. And I'm trying to remember if we ordered them from Amazon or if we booked them from Chapters. But I'm assuming because, like, trying to deliver all these books was a big logistical yeah. problem, right? So, so they hired child labor. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm assuming they just, like, were paying someone and her kids were really excited to yeah. be in, like, this van with 200 Harry Potter books. Oh, my and they were just the cutest kids and they were so excited and i'm like you know that as soon as they jump into the back seat that they've got harry potter like that they're reading while they're delivering harry potter books to other people yeah, like they wanted us to know right away that that was Harry Potter. Like you do not let that sit on the porch for any longer than you have to because Harry Potter's in there. Oh, my God. It was amazing. And then the next time a Harry Potter book came out, it was just the FedEx guy. And it was super disappointing. <laughs> it would have been so nice to see those kids again. I know. We were really hoping it would be the kids. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Okay, I have a question about the relationship between the books and the movies Mm -hmm. when it comes to marketing. You have already very explicitly stated that, like, these decisions were made with J.K. Rowling and Bloomsbury and Warner Brothers together in terms of, like, how how to interact with fans. So I'm wondering, like, it's clear that they had some kind of relationship, these three, this, like, triumvirate, this Harry Potter triumvirate, if you will. So, like, how did the marketing for the books impact the movies and vice versa? Like, it's really common for once the movie comes out, they re-release the book with the movie poster covers, mm-hmm. right? Like, that's a really common thing. But that didn't happen with Harry Potter. So there's obviously something else that's going on between the the book franchise and the film franchise and the J.K. Rowling franchise that, like, connected these things but didn't necessarily have one spilling over entirely on the other. Can I don't know. Do you want to talk about that? <laughs> sure. Um, I don't know the specifics about those relationships, but it is really interesting that even to this day, we've n- I don't think we've ever seen a version of the Harry Potter books released that have movie covers on them. Mm-hmm. Like, what's really, I think, and it must be deliberate because it's mm-hmm. so outside what we see normally, mm-hmm. that the movie and the book spaces are different spaces. Mm -hmm. And I I don't know if that was J.K. Rowling's idea or desire or Bloomsbury. I don't know who initiated that. But it's there's a very clear division between the the space and the canon of the books and the space and the canon of the movies. And it's very clear that they both approve of each other and they're both related. Mm -hmm. But there's a a clear line that they're not the same thing, Mm -hmm. um, which I think is unique in, like you say, the book movie world. Mm -hmm. So it must be deliberate. It has to be deliberate um, that we don't see Daniel Radcliffe's face on every copy of Harry Potter. Like, there's still a desire to create traditional illustrative covers Mm -hmm. with every new release. There's an effort made to design those books. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's a really interesting demarcation of those two canons. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I never really thought of that before, but it is, it is, it must be deliberate. It has mm-hmm. to be deliberate. One of the things that's also really interesting about Harry Potter is the, I was talking about the focus on secrets, like keep everything really secret, uh, which created this kind of media frenzy around it because mm-hmm. there were these stories about these crazy embargoes. There were stories about like book seven has been wrapped in chain, like you've got to have it <laughs> chained up and locked and only one person's allowed to have the key. And it's super tense. And, you know, that created like a buzz within itself Mm -hmm. because all the mainstream media was talking about it. And then that creates like 
a more concerted effort to try and find the spoilers. Um, But also, if you look at the kind of perpetual marketing that Harry Potter went through, in particular during that initial, um, the initial book and then movie release, because those things overlapped. The movie started releasing before the books were finished Mm -hmm. publishing. If you actually sit down and map the schedule of book releases and movie information release, you can see how strategic that perpetual marketing was. So there's always there was always a little bit of information that was released about Harry Potter. And just a little bit. And there was a gap between the information because they wanted you to want more. They didn't want to fill you up and make you tired of Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. But they wanted to make sure that they appeased that desire for information just enough to get you to keep that excitement level high. Mm-hmm. And I don't think anyone has done that quite as well as Harry Potter did that. That appeasing that information for for non-spoilery information, but sometimes kind of spoilery information mm-hmm. to keep the excitement level high. Um, and if you sit down and map the release information and things like you can see that every time they released a movie, that month, later on that month, or no more than 60 days tops later, they began filming the next one. So that at that point, they could start releasing set photos, right? right? And that if you look and and were to map out things like when they started talking about actors who were going to be involved Mm -hmm. or releasing production photos, Mm -hmm. those are very, very deliberate. And they also don't interfere with the books when the two overlap. So they were very careful to incorporate book release information. So when J.K. Rowling was getting ready to launch the seventh book, Mm -hmm. the movie information really kind of fell silent because they didn't want to throw too much at people. They wanted to focus on the books. So we're only going to talk about the books right now. We're going to kind of quell and be quiet on the movie front. And they scheduled that very, very strategically. Yeah. Oh, my God. That is remarkable because the fifth movie came out the same summer that the seventh book came out and they came out fairly close together because I was in Hong Kong and had before going to Hong Kong like found a handful of of English language bookstores where I would for sure be able to get a copy of the seventh book but then I wasn't able to see the movie until I got back to Canada because of like movie schedule releases and stuff like that except that I bought (laughs) I bought a, a black market copy of the fifth movie <laughs> from somebody selling the dvd and i don't know what i expected but it was so bad it was so obviously filmed with somebody's like cell phone camera in the middle of the theater it was terrible this is kind of interesting and i don't remember which movie exactly this was um, it was one of the later films they were having such a problem with bootlegged films in places uh, DVD copies in particular in places like China that they actually released a couple of the DVDs in China a week before they were released in North America or the UK to prevent the bootlegging so that they their sort of money would be intact there they actually released it early in China yeah the DVD so that it would they'd stop the bootlegs this is like a harm reduction approach to marketing (laughs) yes yes exactly Listen up, people. They're going to do it anyway. <laughs> you might as well make it safe. <laughs> wow. Can you talk to me about the Witch Please brand? Yeah, like, okay. so, like, Hannah and I joke about how our brand is like angry feminist yelling over wine and sometimes chips. Are we using the term brand correctly? Is that what a brand is? Yeah. So, 
a brand is the identity around the thing you're selling, or in this case, providing for free. Mm-hmm. But we can think about it in the same way because you are putting something out there and people are consuming it. So even though there's not a monetary exchange, there's still a loyalty or not that appears in that relationship, right? Because you're giving something and someone's taking it or choosing to not take it. There is a consistency in the which please brand that has endured and obviously created a fan following behind it, right? And a certain type of person Mm -hmm. is drawn in to the Witch Please podcast. And you can tell this just by looking at the people who are tweeting you guys, who are engaged in conversations on Twitter in particular around Witch Please, that there is a consistent kind of brand identity. And I think the the angry feminists, I wouldn't say yelling. I would often say laughing. That's That's a good point. (laughs) Laughing over wine and chips and Harry Potter. Mm -hmm. And also modeling... Like the uh, modeling the ideas of loving something mm-hmm. and embracing and talking about its good and bad parts right. and allowing that to be okay. Mm-hmm. Like loving something so much, but also pointing out all its flaws, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is a wonderful activity. Because I think a lot of people sometimes think that loving something means you have to love it unconditionally. Right. And that's not true. We can love something conditionally and we can also still be really angry at it. Mm-hmm. And that's, yeah. Which Please has a great brand. That's why I listen. It's why I listen and send you guys lots of tweets. <laughs> Hannah and I were discussing this and saying that like the fan community, and I always feel really weird saying fan community when I talk about Which Please. <laughs> I tend to use the term listeners because <laughs> I feel very uncomfortable with the idea of being a human who has a fan following. Can I, can I make a suggestion? Mm-hmm. Think about, if you want to use the word fans and not have it hit your brain in that way, you can think about it as the subset of Harry Potter fans that listen to our oh show. Oh my god, that's so true. Okay. You're so smart. <laughs> I'm very good so, at tricking my brain. So like the Harry Potter fans who listen to our show. <laughs> um, that This is like a really, a really remarkable... Uh, counter public of people and like a really remarkable collection of people who have like relatively similar politics and who are like really willing to be open and vulnerable with one another especially as they like call us and each other out on things that they hear us saying or that they hear us repeating and whatnot Um, and I just think that that is super cool so like as much as I think Hannah and I went into this with a certain kind of um, end game in mind really the listenership has like shaped the the way that the which please brand has developed because we continued to do things where we got positive feedback and people seem to really like the like wine and the yelling and the laughing and the chips so that's and the owl sounds sounds. (laughs) is that just like how other brands work they like get positive feedback and then they continue to to do those things Yeah, so branding is a conversation between a product or a service and the people who use it. Because if you have a brand that nobody's using, you don't have a brand, right? right? Like a brand exists as a conversation. Mm -hmm. It is this is who we think we are. This is who we would like to be. Mm -hmm. And then you put that out there and see, A, if people respond, and B, when they respond, what parts of your brand they respond to. Mm -hmm. And then 
as part of the conversation because you want to make money and get more of those people or make sure at least that the people you have keep coming back. You want to reinforce those parts of your brand that are working, mm-hmm. right? As long as they don't conflict with your with with your vision of what the brand should be. So if, if I'm trying to appeal to people who are – um, have certain types of values and I'm only getting people who have like values I disagree with, then mm-hmm. I might not favor that. But right. that also tells me I've done a really bad job <laughs> of communicating <laughs> what my identity is. Yeah. Um, but that's a conversation. It's a conversation between a business entity and its customers. In the same way that when you make a friend with somebody, um, you're it's a communication, that relationship. Mm -hmm. So it is about relationships and it isn't one way you can impact a brand Mm -hmm. and you can't necessarily impact it as a single person, Mm -hmm. but you can impact it as a group. So if enough people say we fundamentally think that this is breaking our relationship with this brand, Mm -hmm. they will pay attention to that, Right. right? Because their concern is making sure that the people keep coming back mm-hmm. to continue to pay money to buy their stuff. Mm-hmm. And if you sever, if enough people sever that relationship and they think that they have an opportunity to get those people back by making a decision, they may make that decision to distance themselves from that or maybe not hire the next person who maybe has a questionable past that wouldn't agree with those values. Mm-hmm. So it's always good to voice those values and voice those concerns, right? Because if a brand is important enough to you and if you think a brand is doing something that is fundamentally against what you thought that brand was about, mm-hmm. it's important to give that feedback. Mm-hmm. And ideally, we don't want to give that feedback in hate mail, but yeah. certainly in constructive ways. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you got to get angry, yeah. right? Like sometimes you got to burn something down. Thank you, dear listeners, for joining us for whatever Greek letter episode this one happens to be. I'm not actually sure where we are right now because we were recording this in the past. Uh, You can find the rest of our episodes that are not at all arbitrarily numbered on iTunes or any podcast catching app of your choice. If you happen to find yourself on iTunes, you might consider contributing to the Witch Please marketing campaign by dropping us a rating or a review. We love our reviews more than anything, and sometimes we read them out loud to ourselves when we're feeling alone in the world to remember that, hey, you're out there too. And speaking of hey yous out there, thanks to everyone who drops us a line to let us know when we've been there for you. In particular, we're sending long-distance kitten purrs to Ramey, Steph, and Aaron for being brave enough to tell us what we mean to you. If you only knew what you mean to us and how deeply we thrive on the generous and fierce energy that you send our way. This community of listeners is the most beautiful collective of people, and you're all amazing, and we love you so much. We also love our erstwhile tech support and the robot of our hearts. Trevor Chow Fraser. Hi, how are you doing? If you're the type of person who feels more comfortable expressing your love through gifts rather than words, we encourage you to buy yourself a gift, possibly featuring our very beautiful faces from society6.com slash ohwitchplease. There's a link on our website. Since we recorded this, as I said, uh, back in the past, and we have no idea what the future holds, we don't really know what kinds of shenanigans we'll be up to in the post-apocalyptic future. So... Until the future becomes the present. Later, witches.